of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and testify to what we have seen. Yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace to you and peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. To what can we compare the most blessed Trinity? God's existence as three persons united into one being is perhaps the most confusing belief in the Christian faith. How Christ can be present in heaven and here at the altar? <coughs> that seems easy enough, he's God. How can water do such marvelous things? It's not water, but water with the word of God and spirit. Okay, we got the sacraments down. What's the deal with the crucifixion? Well, Christ conquers the power of death in his resurrection. That makes sense. We see that every year when spring gives way to new life. But the Trinity, three and one and one and three and twelve, all sorts of caveats to try to clarify it, it really just makes it more confusing. So much more confusing, in fact, that the church spent its first four centuries arguing about this doctrine, trying to figure out which understanding is the most faithful. And many of those ancient debates have reoccurred throughout the ages. There is no new argument underneath the sun. Entire libraries worth of texts have been published just to explain this one doctrine. But understanding remains elusive. When we try to explain our belief in the Trinity to our friends, to our children, to ourselves, 
we naturally reach for analogies, something in our life that we can use to try to explain it. Trinity is sort of like an egg. No, 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 not, not an egg, a clover. No, we use a lot of fire around here. It's like a flame. No, it's like a, a human. No, a hand. Before we try to draw out similarities between an eternal God and something infinitesimally small. And because God is infinite and we are infinitesimal, every attempt to explain it falls woefully short. Every analogy is wrong in some crucial way. Think back to the analogies that you've heard used to describe the Trinity. It's like an egg, which has three parts, a yolk, the white, and the shell. Except, no, that doesn't quite cover it, because God can't be broken down into component parts. It's not like you mix equal parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, put it in the oven at 350 for an hour, and boom, you've got God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each fully God. As the Athanasian Creed puts it, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. Okay, so not, not Meg. Maybe the Trinity is like a woman who may at the same time be a daughter, a sister, and an engineer. But no, that's not quite it either. Not like there's one person filling three different roles, like the Father decided one day to be the creator, one day to be the redeemer, one day to be the sustainer. But rather, God is three persons. Again, the Athanasian Creed teaches the Father is one person. The Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. Jesus Christ isn't God the Father wearing a human mask. Well, how about the flame, then? Because I, I'm a bit of a pyromaniac. I really like fire. Let's say that the Trinity is like a fire, which produces both heat and light. So that's Arianism. And that's why we have the Nicene Creed. Uh, it's the heretical belief that the Son and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father. So to again quote the Athanasian Creed, uncreated is the Father, uncreated is the Son, uncreated is the Spirit. And as the Nicene Creed puts it, Christ is begotten, not made. Scripture spells out that the Son is the one through whom all things are made. Our analogies always fall short. And when we're talking about the Trinity, every precise detail is important. Every time we try to craft an analogy, we fall into heresies like partialism, like modalism, like Arianism. God is larger than our language, larger than our analogies. God is only like God. The Trinity is only like the Trinity. And because of this, it can be really tempting to throw up our hands in frustration. What does it matter? It's not like we're going to be greeted at the gates of the kingdom and given a test on Trinitarian theology. St. Peter's not going to turn around and say, Theo, recite the Athanasian Greed. <coughs> you got 
think because we're not going to be greeted at the gates of heaven with a text, that this doesn't have any bearing on the real world. That it's just a point of theology to be debated by academics wearing tweed jackets with elbow patches and lecture halls, arguing over the precise meaning of Greek words, or for pastors to complain about preaching confusing sermons once a year. So first of all, let's not knock academics or tweed jackets with elbow patches, because I like both of those things. Theologians serving the church and the academy not only help form those called to ministry, both lay and ordained, but also help to guide the body of Christ as we wrestle with the faith handed down once for all to the saints, especially the mystery of the triune God. To be certain, theology and Trinitarian theology is important because it does have bearing in our daily lives. Our theology defines who we are. One particular heresy has come roaring back in ancient or in recent years. It's called subordinationism. The doctrine is that Christ, God the Son, is inferior to the Father rather than co-equal in majesty and glory. And so again, we might be tempted to say, okay, so what? In human relationships, sons are supposed to obey their fathers, children, their parents. This makes sense. And who cares? It goes against what the creeds say. But the creeds teach us that in this trinity, no one is before or after, greater or less than the other. And in direct contradiction to the Christian faith, certain theologians in the fundamentalist world have used this heresy to subjugate women, arguing that they are inferior to men and should be subordinate that just as the son is inferior to the father, so women are inferior to their husbands. And we've seen in recent years the pain and anguish that this has caused in action as pastors have condemned women to stay with their abusers, as they've used this doctrine to cover up sexual assault. This, this is not the way of Christ. This is not who God is, and this is not what God wants for us. Our beliefs do matter. Not for the sake of passing some test, not for being able to explain the intricacies of doctrine, but in practical, concrete ways. We are called to follow Christ and to love God. And it is only through loving God that we can love each other, love our neighbors, love our enemies. So if we are to be holy as God is holy, if we are to love as God loves, we must strive to understand, we must wrestle with who God is. The Christian faith shapes our daily lives, explicitly and implicitly. Good theology may produce holy lives, but bad theology, pain and suffering. Theology is important because it guides the life of the church and guides our lives. The Trinity, that sacred mystery beyond human comprehension, is not merely a theological statement detached from our lived experience. It matters. 
and it's best understood not through inept analogies or even through lengthy creedal statements, but rather we comprehend the Trinity through God's active self-revelation in Scripture and the world. That is to say, we know who God is through what God does. So where do we start with this confusing statement? If we're not going to turn to degrees, we're not going to reach for analogies, well, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, a wind, literally a spirit from God, flew over the face of the deep waters. God spoke, and by the divine word, the world was formed. Creating humanity in their image, God flew breath, again, literally, the spirit, into our first parents. The triune God in all of God's glory is at work in the cosmos. From before the foundations of the world, from everlasting to everlasting, God exists in Trinity and in Trinity unity. And ages upon ages later, after Christ's resurrection and ascension, a few years after the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, St. Paul shows us the triune God continuing to work in the world as the Father adopts us as children and co-heirs with and through Christ. All this comes about through rebirth in the Spirit, poured out at Pentecost and poured out on us in baptism. We learn who the triune God is through what God does, and what God does is save humanity and redeem the world. Just as all three persons in the Trinity were at work laying the foundations of the world, so they are all involved in our redemption. We know who God is through what God does, and the Lord is mighty to save. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But as we read through Paul, we hit words that stop us in our tracks. It says, if in fact we suffer with Christ. And how is this salvation? Especially when these words have been interpreted in such ways to keep people enslaved, to keep people in abusive marriages, to keep people under oppression. What does this tell us about who God is? That our God is angry and wrathful? That God finds glory in human suffering? That God desires our pain? By no means. By no means. Dear ones, we misunderstand these words if we hear them as condemnation to abuse. What does it mean for us to suffer with Christ, to suffer as Christ suffered? It means to follow in Christ's footsteps. It means to take the gospel into places of suffering. It means that just as Christ stepped down from heaven into earth, that we too should leave our places of greater comfort to reach out to those in need. It means finding those in pain and sitting with them the way that Christ, the very word of God, took on human flesh, the way that Christ joined us in the grave to liberate us from the grave. It means that we respond to God's call just as Isaiah did. 
when confronted with the overwhelming glory of the triune God and the suffering of the world, we cry out, here I am, send me. Here we are, send us. The Lord is sending us out to the hopeless places to proclaim hope, to the places of pain to proclaim healing, to the places of death to proclaim life, to the places of loss to proclaim salvation. By divine grace and in response to the calling of the Holy Spirit, we are being called to participate in God's liberating work of salvation. We suffer with Christ when we go out to those places where people are suffering and we accompany them into new life. We suffer with Christ when we go to the places where women have fled from violence in the home and we ensure that they are sheltered, that they are fed, that they are cared for, that they enjoy the same legal protection that we would hope for everyone. We suffer with Christ when we give of our time, our talents, our wealth, ourselves, to support places like the Rescue Mission and the Dove Center and their efforts to care for the marginalized, to shelter women and children fleeing from abuse, to care for our enemies, to care for those who aren't like us, to welcome the stranger, whether they're at our doorway or at our southern border or at a refugee camp. We know who God is through what God does, not by way of analogy, but by mighty deeds of salvation, of incomprehensible acts of mercy, of deeds that might look foolish, but reveal the glory of God. The triune God is at work redeeming the world from violence and death, rescuing us from the power of sin. Our Almighty Lord is sending us out to proclaim this liberation to the world, to show the world that our God cares for the suffering. So what does this tell us about who 